Well, Happy New Year. I haven't seen you guys since last year. That joke always kills once a year in two services. So, well guys, I, I really am uh, confident that many of you have started out the uh, new year right by spending uh, concentrated time, like vital minutes in God's Word. Uh, like last year, we began using this app, the Dwell app, to uh, listen to and read the Bible. And as a church, uh, we averaged about 15,000 minutes every month last year, which is, which is really awesome. Well, just in the first six days of this new year alone, we have already listened to 33,609 minutes. That is awesome. That is over 560 hours of the Word of God that you've been giving your attention to. Uh, well done, overachievers. Keep it up. Well done, shredders. Keep it up. Like, I know, I am absolutely confident that God will use this to change your life. Because anyone, anyone who comes face to face with Jesus Christ in His Word, with a willing heart, will have their life changed. You see, when we open the Bible, we don't simply read about God. We meet Him on the pages of Scripture. We get to know Him through His Word. Like He reveals Himself to the one who seeks Him where He has said He will be found, which is in the Word of God. Isaiah 55, verse 10 says this, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is My Word that goes out of My mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And what does His Word produce in the lives of, so, of those who yield to it when it goes forth? Verse 13, instead of a thorn bush, will grow a pine tree. And instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown. Now, I read a quote in August during our legacy series about this verse that I think bears repeating. Paul Tripp writes about verse 13, and he says, We must admit that this is one of the strangest word pictures in all of the Bible. If you had a thorn bush in your backyard, you wouldn't say, You know what? If it keeps raining, that thorn bush is going to turn into a pine tree. Like you would never think that a well-watered briar would somehow morph into a myrtle. What is the prophet trying to communicate by stretching our botanical understanding? What does this metaphor tell us about what God intends the truths of His Word to produce? Isaiah's strange word picture paints a picture of radical organic transformation. The plant that is being watered becomes an entirely different plant. So it is with the Word of God. 
God's plan is that when the rain of biblical doctrine falls on us, it would change us. Not that we'd become better renditions of ourselves, but that we would become spiritually different than we were before. As the rain of truth falls, angry people become peacemakers. Greedy people become givers. Demanding people become servants. Lustful people become pure. Faithless people become believers. Proud people become humble. Rebels become obedient. And idolaters become worshipers of God. And so can I just tell you, church, that's what you can expect when you approach the Bible with a yielded heart. That's what you can expect this year in your life as you immerse yourself in His Word. And that is specifically what I'm praying for you this year as you make reading and listening to the Bible a priority in your life. And as we start my message today, I would, I would love for us to each bow our head and I want to take a moment and pray. In fact, I want you to pray silently for those on your right and those on your left. Pray that what I just read would be true in their life. Pray that God would use His Word so powerfully in their life that they would become something that they're not. That they would become a new spiritual reality. That they would be freed from patterns of sin. That they would be delivered to serve Him. That they would be changed from the inside out. Pray that for the people on your right and on your left. Pray that for your family. Pray that for your church. And now simply pray for that person on your right and that person on your left. Pray, God, please use Your Word to change their life today, this week, and this year as they yield to You. Father, that is our prayer. For our families, for our brothers and sisters in Christ, God, that we would not simply yield to Your Word, but that we would be increasingly yielded to it. As we say yes to it, may our yeses become come to us more quickly. May our repentance come more quickly as You deal with us, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Alright. Well, this morning I am kicking off a brand new series called In Entrusted. And of course, to entrust means to put something into someone else's care or to hand it over to their protection. It means giving them a responsibility for something or for someone. Right? It means to confer trust in that person as you entrust something to them. And every one of us in this room have been entrusted with many things by many different people. Like we've been entrusted with things like our marriage, our family, our school, our career, our relationships, secrets, material things, gifts. And we've been entrusted these by many different kinds of people. By our parents, by our husband or by our wife, 
boyfriend or girlfriend, children, teachers, employers, friends, even the government. Yet there is nothing that you have ever been entrusted with that is more significant than what Jude tells us about in his short letter in the New Testament. You can turn there. Near the end of the New Testament, the author is Jude. It's only one chapter long. And uh, what he tells us is that each one of you as a believer, each Christian in here, has been trusted with something that has value beyond all of our collective imaginations. Jude writes this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now, interestingly to me, Jude is also the half-brother of Jesus. And he doesn't mention this. Like, if I was the half-brother of Jesus, I'd be like throwing that into every conversation, right? <laughs> Especially if I'm in church. Yeah, I remember growing up with Jesus. You know, he was the best. Oh, did you not know that Jesus was my brother? I mean, I would always throw that in, but instead, he doesn't identify himself as the half-brother of Jesus. He identifies himself as the servant of Jesus Christ. That's where he ranks himself. And he writes to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Believers, that's your identity. Like you ought to, you ought to let that sink in. Christian, you are called by God. You are loved in the Father, and the Father keeps you for His own Son, Jesus. Loved, called, and kept. Dear friends, Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only Sovereign and Lord. And so Jude, the brother of James, the half-brother of Jesus, the servant of Jesus Christ says, hey, I was planning to write what would have been no doubt a really encouraging kind of feel-good letter to you about the salvation we share. However, Something was going on that was so important that it redirected my pen. Like Jude was compelled to sound the alarm, to send out a call to fight for the faith. Jude, Jude was stirred to battle. You get the idea of him hearing some news and pushing back from the table, and putting on his well-worn armor, and strapping on his sword, and calling the church of Jesus Christ to do the same. Because God's honor, His great name, His revealed truth is at stake, and Jude cannot sit by and wait for someone else to speak up, wait for someone else to act. 
Like I'm, I'm wondering, just in your Bible reading over the last six days, does this remind you of anyone? Like, can you think of any examples of people who were passionate for the honor of God? I mean, Shredders. This is Phineas from Numbers 25 who after God had delivered the people from Israel and given them the law and then forgiven them because of the golden calf, they start committing immorality with foreign women in the camp of God and God sends a judgment on the camp. And even as the elders of Israel are trying to deal with this and seek the Lord, Phineas, a priest, sees an Israelite bring in a foreign woman, get inside of his tent and begin to have sex with her. And he is so repulsed by this person flaunting their sin in the presence of God that he gets the tent pole and he drives it through the back of one and through the chest of the other. And we read that, we hear that with our 21st century sensibilities and we're kind of taken back. Well, that's jacked up. I mean, that guy, like, he obviously had an anger problem. Like, what's wrong with him? Like, couldn't he have just said, hey, uh, guys, God said don't do that. <laughs> well, that's what we think. What does God think? In Numbers 25, God says of this priest, Phineas was zealous for my honor. He, in fact, he was as zealous for my honor as I am. Would that be said of all of us? Like, can you imagine a greater goal to shoot for for the rest of your life that I would be as zealous for the honor of God as God is Himself? I, this is, as we read today, if you're a shredder, this is David before Goliath. He brings supplies to his brothers on the battle line and he sees that moment when this giant Goliath stands up and mocks God and mocks the armies of God. And he's like, is there no one in all of Israel who's going to step up and take this guy's challenge? I mean, at that moment, something awakened in young David. For him, the honor of Yahweh was worth fighting for. Even worth dying for. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine to taunt the armies of the living God? You will see this day, I will cut off your head and then all of you will know that there is a God in Israel. Like, are you stirred? at all? Are you moved for the honor of God, for the fame and glory of Christ? Like I, I found guys with me that I tend to have an opinion, even a strong and passionate opinion about so many inconsequential things. Like over Thanksgiving, our family gathered for our meal and afterwards as we were digesting way too much food, we each shared our list of top 10 movies of all time. 
Like we had slideshows and everything. We made our case for why these were the top ten. And we debated back and forth and argued. And I got to tell you, my list was better than their list. <laughs> like obviously, their list was garbage and my list was amazing. They had some of mine on their list, but they just weren't there yet. Maybe they'll mature over time. I don't know. All right? But it's so clear that the greatest movie of all time is It's a Wonderful Life. Like, I knew that, and they hadn't caught on to that yet. That's, that's on them. I'm so passionate about inconsequential things. I think of this past Tuesday as we gathered after the uh, New Year's break, and I asked our staff what they did on New Year's Day, and they told me about you know food and fun and friends and family and everything else. And then Pastor Trey responded by giving... As a lengthy and passionate play-by-play account of the Sugar Bowl between Washington and UT. Like, he was into it. It went on and on. It was like a sermon. A Trey Dove sermon. Like, it was that long. And I got to tell you, honestly, I could care less. I don't care about UT. But Trey does. And In fact, Trey was fired up. Like he was emotional, like he was just distraught that they lost that game. They, they, they should not have lost that game. He was mad at them like he knew them. <laughs> I guess all that to say, Trey has a problem. And <laughs> yeah. But guys, what I found is that uh, when people have a passionate opinion about something, we usually see that as a positive, right? Like we, we look at them and we may not share their opinion, but we respect their zeal. We're like, good for him. Like I love that Trey knew every play. He was so into it. Like he told it in a way that you're, it was captivating. Like we see zeal usually as a positive unless it's a zeal for, a passion for doctrine. And when somebody is passionate about doctrine, this is how we see them. Even within the church, we see them as either potentially divisive because they want to argue about something, or they're fanatical, or maybe they're a fundamentalist, or maybe they're just too full of themselves. But if we look to the Scripture, like the Scripture does not give them that kind of identity. In fact, you know, Isn't that how David's big brother thought of him? As he stood and said, I'll fight that giant. Isn't that how most of Israel probably looked on at Phinehas as he took that tent pole and did what they wouldn't be doing because they were passive and apathetic? Guys, understand this. It is right to fight when you fight for what's right. It is right to fight when you fight for what's right. Like along with David, along with Phineas, Jude calls us to fight with, for the faith. Not with a sword or spear, but with truth and with boldness. For the person who always thinks and their steady refrain is, it's not worth fighting for. Well, what did you say? Well, it's not worth fighting for. Guys, it's time to fight. Like for the church... For the bride of Christ, 
for the truth of the Gospel, for the truth of the Word. It is time to fight against the culture that thinks that they've won. It is time to fight. In fact, the word contend in verse 3 is a translation of a Greek word, ep agonize omai. What does that sound like? Agonize. <laughs> like we get our English word agonize from this word that is translated contend. It's a word that appears in ancient literature talking about the military or athletes. It means to fight or to struggle with intense effort. In fact, it literally means an intense effort expended in a noble cause. And that's what Jude is calling for here. He's saying, listen, it won't be easy to contend for the faith. In fact, at times it may be agonizing. It may be really difficult. Like what did Jesus say? I've come to set father against son and mother against daughter. Your enemies will be members of your own household. Like highly trained athlete, like, like a seasoned soldier, we must be fervent and take intentional action. Why? What's at stake? The faith once for all entrusted to the saints. This sermon series as a whole is a call to passionate orthodoxy. By orthodoxy, I literally mean like what the word literally means, which is correct or straight opinion. That's what orthodoxy means. And when it refers to Christian theology, it means the right views on the essential truths of the Christian faith. Like it has been understood historically to mean what was believed and practiced everywhere, always, and by all. Like these aren't the little rabbit trails we get caught up in. These aren't the, I wonder, like, is the rapture before the tribulation? Is it the same thing as the second coming? Were the days of creation literal 24 hour days? Or were there ages? Those things are important, but they're not things that are caught within the idea of orthodoxy. Like, these are the non negotiables of the faith. What have been believed by the Christians everywhere, always, and by all. And in this series, I, I don't want to simply change the way you think about doctrine. I want to change the way you feel about doctrine. I don't want to change simply the way you think about doctrine. I want to change the way you feel about doctrine. Here's our problem. Our affections are disordered. We're psyched about all the wrong things. We're passionate about all the wrong things. I used to have a junior high pastor who worked with me when I was at Hill Country Austin. Great guy. His name was Charlie. And Charlie would often come into my office with his new glasses or his new shoes or his new shirt. And he would say this. He'd be like, man, I, he was so passionate. I love these shoes. I just love them. I just love these shoes. And I'd always say the same thing. I'd say, oh, okay. Well, um, I love the Lord because He hears my voice and my supplication. Because He has inclined His ear to me, therefore I will call upon Him all the days of my life. But, you know, it's cool that you love shoes. <laughs> you pagan. You heretic. You love, like if you love shoes, like and Chinese food, and that one TV show, 
and your wife and kids, don't your wife and kids kind of feel slighted? Like, don't you have a hierarchy of passions? The thing that should be the top of your hierarchy of passions should be the name and fame of Yahweh. That should be top. We are all too often passionate about that which is inconsequential and apathetic about the things that are eternal. And we need to flip that. Like, would you describe yourself as passionate about doctrine? Or would you say, well, I'm not into doctrine, I'm just into Jesus. To which I would say, which Jesus? Because once you start unpacking who He is, you're entering the world of theology. It should matter deeply to you. Like it should stir you. Like orthodoxy should fill you with joy. And heresy should fill you with grief and even anger. I mean, after all, when Jesus saw the Jews of His day behaving in a heretical way in their practice in the temple, what did He do? He made a whip of cords and He cleansed the temple. Why did He do that? Well, His disciples looking on, they knew why. And they put a verse in the Bible to it. Psalm 69, verse 9. They said, zeal for your house consumes Me. Zeal for your house consumes Me. The problem today is we have way too many consumers in the church and way too few that are consumed with His bride. The zeal for your house consumes Me and the insults of those who insult you fall on Me. We, church, should feel deeply every insult aimed at Christ. Like if we hear His name taken in vain, it should grieve us. Like we should hear that and it can't bounce off of us. We need to be sensitive to that. We need a holy repulsion to sin. And we should feel deeply every insult aimed at His bride, the church. Like we should think when we hear those insults targeting this church or that church, this Christian or that Christian, we should think, who are these uncircumcised Philistines who think that they can taunt the armies of the living God? Who are these pagans who can speak about the blood-bought bride of Christ? From heaven, He came and sought her. Like we never need to leave that. And so guys, we need to contend for the faith. Please stop waiting for David to show up. Stop waiting for Phineas to step up. You step up. You stand firm in your faith. To which you may respond, well, Pastor Bobby, I know this is a big deal to you, obviously, but uh, and it really matters to you. And I'm glad. I'm happy for you. I enjoy your passion. I don't share it because I'm not a theologian. Well, of course you are. Of course you're a theologian. Like, what is theology? It's literally words about God. Who has words about God? Everybody. Everybody is a theologian. The real question is not whether you're a theologian, it's what type of theologian are you? Like, are you a good theologian? Or are you a bad theologian? 
Are you orthodox or are you heretical? Like, does the theology you espouse line up with the Word of God and what He has communicated about Himself for us to enjoy and glory in for all eternity? Like, theology matters. J.T. English and Jen Wilkin write in their new book, all of life is ultimately about theology because all of life is lived in reference to who God is, who we are, and what He has done, and what He is doing. Theology matters because it shapes us not merely at an intellectual level, but at an emotional and a practical level. Christians do not merely learn theology, they do theology. We think differently, feel differently, and act differently as a result of developing better categories for understanding God. Like good theology or bad theology shapes you and it forms you. Like good theology is what transforms us by the renewing of our mind. And so unless you're content to live a theologically contradictory life, it's time to contend for the faith that has once for all been delivered or entrusted to the saints. That same word, entrusted, is used at the beginning of Luke's Gospel. It's used this way. He says, I gathered a bunch of stories that were handed down and I checked them with the eyewitnesses. And that term handed down is the Greek word translated and trusted. Paul uses this same word in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, what I received from Christ, I passed on to you what was of first important? Passed on is the same word here. The faith was handed down. The faith was passed on. It was delivered. It was entrusted. Like who delivered the faith to you? Like who shared the Gospel with you when you prayed to receive Christ? Like who anchored you in the faith? Discipled you? Like established you firmly in what you believe? And what are you doing to deliver that same faith to other people right now and to the next generation? Like we need to contend for what is literally in this passage, the once for all entrusted to the saints faith. Like all of those words, like modify the word faith, the once for all entrusted. Like to the saints faith. Like Jude is speaking of something that has already been known, already received. One commentator says by the time that Jude wrote his letter, probably about 70 A.D., the faith had already been fixed and established in the apostolic teaching of the early church and therefore could not be changed. Like we're not free to change the faith. Like we don't need to invent our church. We just need to look to the Scripture and see what it says about a church. Like we, we don't need to invent a new faith as if the faith of Christ is somehow evolving. It is complete. It needs no corrections and it needs no additions. And so with that said, I have a little commercial break I want to give you. Uh, this week, really today or tomorrow, I want you to take about 10 minutes and I want you to do the state of theology survey for me. It's, it's on your uh, bulletin in your handout. You know, the outline has the QR code. Uh, it's also on your Church Center app. 
This is about 30 or 35 questions that are theological in nature. It's a, a blind survey. I won't know who filled it out, but I will gather all the information. It kind of gives us a pulse of our church when it comes to theology and when it comes to what really matters. So do that today. It'll only take you about 10 minutes because we must contend for that which has been entrusted to us. Why? For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago, side note, God was not surprised in any way. He's not caught off guard by these people's defection from orthodoxy. He says their condemnation was written about long ago. They've secretly slipped in among you like they are in the church. They have attached themselves to the Christian faith in some way. Like I wonder, have you ever been part of a church or a nonprofit or a parachurch group or a small group that got off like track spiritually and got off track doctrinally? Like who are these people that he's writing about and how do you recognize them? Look how Jude describes these people. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only Sovereign and Lord. How do you recognize them? Well, they are the ones who cast off the authority of Christ and take advantage of His grace. That's who they are. They pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. The word pervert there means to change or alter or twist. Like they were changing the intended you know, effect of God's grace, twisting it into something that it wasn't supposed to be. A license for sin. Like a get-out-of-hell-free card. Like an excuse for their behavior. Like Christ set us free from sin. He saved us from sin unto Himself. In other words, they were kind of gutting the faith of all their moral commands. Like if you want something, take it. I mean, after all, you're free in Christ. But Jude understood that the faith is, is both theological and moral. Belief and behavior go hand in hand. Theology matters. What you believe will determine how you behave. Paul Tripp writes, truth that does not form your lifestyle is probably not truth that is believed in the biblical sense of what faith actually is. Truth that does not form your lifestyle is probably not truth that is really believed. So how would these people who claim to be one of us possibly justify like living without any restraint? Well, they do it this way. They deny Jesus Christ, our only Sovereign and Lord. And in the context, they're not denying the deity of Christ. They're not denying what He accomplished on the cross to cover their sin. What they're actually denying is His Lordship. His authority over who they are and what they do and how they live. Like this is how you recognize them. They believe what they want to believe so they can do what they want to do. They believe what they want to believe so they can do what they want to do. Historically, the first theological domino to fall that leads to heresy is is one of authority. Has God really said that you can't eat of every tree in the garden? 
And that lie goes on. It rings out even to this day. They rebelled against the Lordship of Christ over their choices, over their identity, and they become a law unto themselves. But the cross of Christ, guys, demands that we live cross-shaped lives. As Christians, we should live cruciformed lives. We shouldn't just believe what we want to believe so we can do whatever we want to do. Like twice in the Psalms, you read these words. It says that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And then the next verse says, they are corrupt and their deeds are wicked. You read that and you think, okay, which is... Which is the chicken and which is the egg? What's the cart and what's the horse, theologically? Like, which came first? Like, did, did they just decide one day that there is no God and as a result of there not being God, they lived like there was no God? Or did they just simply want to live like there was no God? Like, they wanted to sleep around. They wanted to party. They wanted to be on the A-team for a while. And the only way to justify that was to kick out of your idea any understanding of a God who you would answer to or judge. They believe what they want to believe so they can do what they want to do. Sadly, I have seen this play out again and again and again. And people justify it by saying that they read some verse in the Bible and it really tripped them up and so they just walked away from the faith and that's why they're sleeping with their girlfriend. That's why they're partying. That's why they're not going to church anymore. Are they set through a class in college and it just wrecked their whole lives and turned their worldview upside down? I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. They believe what they want to believe. So they can do what they want to do. They have a lifestyle they want to pursue and they go in search of a worldview, a philosophy, a religion, or lack thereof to then justify that worldview. But you, O church of God, must contend for what you have been entrusted. Oh, I'd rather that you be hot or cold. But because you are lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. We should be passionate and have zeal for the things, the things of God, the things that God has passion for. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for this table. I just think of the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 that, that he received what he teaches about this table directly from You. And then He entrusted it to, delivered it to, passed it on to the church of Corinth and every church that He planted. Lord Jesus, we know that right now this table is speaking. It's telling a story of the death of the Savior of the world for sinners like us. And I pray that as we approach this table today, we would not just simply uh, take the bread and take the cup, but that we would feel something. God, that You would stir in us a passion for communion with You that we get here as we gather together as Your church. 
Lord, may Your bread and may this cup be true spiritual nourishment for Your bride today. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.